Welcome to studentofthebible.com. I'm your host, Renee, and I'm a Bible student. I'm glad you are, too. Thank you so much for joining. Pray for discernment and ask God to show you how you can share this information with others and be a blessing. In today's podcast, Temple Talk Part 1, we're going to take a look at the tiny country of Israel, honestly no bigger than New Jersey. But you know, Israel has been the center of worship and politics and controversy for thousands of years. And we're going to take a look at the center of worship for Jews in Jesus's time and even before. We're going to take a look at the Jewish temple. My husband and I just returned from our first trip to Israel and it was life-changing. You know, on the one hand, it was poignant because we were able to experience in a small way the tension and the sadness of the ongoing conflict of who owns the land and how it affects everyday life for Jews and Arabs. But then on the other hand, the trip was remarkable. And we were honestly always filled with awe and wonder because we literally walked where Jesus walked. We stepped in water, were baptized in water, and sailed on water, just like Jesus. Today's podcast is going to take us back 2,000 years to the time of Jesus when the temple was still standing, and it was the center of worship and commerce and gatherings and teachings and celebration and penance. It housed the Holy Scripture. The Sanhedrin met there. And if you were a Jew, you sensed the very presence of God in a very physical and maybe even foreboding way. Now, the first temple was erected a thousand years earlier by King Solomon. That's King David's son. Now, King David he really wanted to be the one to build this permanent residence for the Ark of the Covenant. Now, since the time of Moses, the Ark had always been placed in a tent-like structure that could be moved. It was called the tabernacle. Well, the Philistines destroyed this tabernacle about 1050 BC. Now, David brought the Ark back to Jerusalem and he really wanted to be the one to build God's permanent home. As a matter of fact, he said how unfair it was that he lived in a palace of cedar and God lived in a tent. Well, God, like he often does, had different plans. And he actually, through his prophet Nathan, let David know that he was not going to be the one to build the temple. In 1 Chronicles 28, verses 2 through 5, we hear David. Then King David rose to his feet and he said, Hear me, my brothers and my people. I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the ark of the Lord and a footstool of our God. And I even made preparations for building. But God said to me, 
you may not build this house for my name, for you are a man of war and you've shed blood. Yet the Lord God of Israel chose me from all my father's house to be king over Israel forever. For he chose Judah as leader and in the house of Judah, my father's house. And among my father's sons, he took pleasure in me to be king over all Israel. And of all my sons, for the Lord has given me many sons, he chose Solomon, my son, to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. Now, we know from the Bible that the first temple was pretty extraordinary. Not surprising, because if you know anything about Solomon, we know that he was the wisest and potentially even the wealthiest king that ever lived. So he has access to the best of the best. It took seven years to complete, not a whole heck of a long time. He gets the best stone cutters who quarry massive limestone blocks. He gets the best craftsmen from all over the Middle East to design the furnishings out of gold and ivory. And then he commissions people to go to Lebanon to cut down the finest cedar trees. Now here's where I'm gonna pause. This was one of those aha moments because when I was in Israel, one of the questions that I had in my mind was, okay, the temple's been destroyed twice and we know that it was burned down. How would it burn if it was made out of limestone? Well, a good portion of it, both times, was made out of cedar. Now, cedar made sense because it was bug-proof. Think about your cedar closet. And it was also rot-proof. And it was also beautiful. So they did use cedar in the construction of both the first temple and the second temple. We also know that it sat high on a hill called Mount Moriah. Solomon's temple was about 900 feet long, 30 feet wide, and 45 feet high. Now, when God denied King David the right to build the temple, King David went and he paid 50 silver shekels to purchase a threshing floor. And then he goes later and he purchases the entire mountain for 600 shekels. It's interesting because shekels, 3,000 years later, is still the monetary system for Israel. We converted our U.S. dollars into shekels. I just love it. So the Bible tells us that David purchases this land on Mount Moriah. Okay. Anybody know why Mount Moriah is so important? Well, it's the mountain where Abraham was about to sacrifice his son Isaac. So the mountain's incredibly sacred to the Jews. And interestingly, some Jews believe this is also the mountain where God created the very first man, Adam. Kind of a big deal. Okay, what is a threshing floor? Here's a fun fact. A threshing floor was usually round in a flat area, 36 to 45 feet in diameter, and it would be located on some type of elevation, not necessarily a mountaintop, but some type of elevation because they needed to have the wind be able to blow the chaff away. 
Farmers would thresh and then winnow their grain wheat here. They would use a tool called a flail, which if you can envision two sticks connected by a short chain and you hold one end of the stick and then you flail or you beat the other end into the grain. Or sometimes you would use an ox and the ox would go around in the circle and he would tread on the wheat and separate it. Now this is way before machinery and so farmers would have to separate the wheat that they wanted from the chaff that they didn't. The chaff would literally blow away in the wind. Threshing floors were so important. They were literally places of nourishment and survival. Oh my gosh, what a fitting spot for the temple of God. And yet, how humble, a threshing floor. But why not? God honestly meets us anywhere, even a threshing floor. And you know, maybe that's what the hymnist William Cowper in 1769 meant when he wrote, Jesus, where'er your people meet, there they behold your mercy seat. And where'er they seek you, you are found. And every place is hallowed ground. Now, as prophesied by Jeremiah, although nobody listened to him, the poor guy, this first temple was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 BC. Now, the Jews were in exile in Babylon for about 70 years, and then here is an amazing miracle. Holy cow, Cyrus, the great king of Persia, lets the Jews go so that they can rebuild the temple, which is what they do after quite a bit of arguing. And they rebuild it around 515 BC. Fast forward around 500 years. Now, this is during the time of King Herod. This is a little point of contention. Some people now call the temple that Herod refurbished as the third temple because people, what he did was he actually doubled the size of it. So where some will say he refurbished, others will say he completely rebuilt. But to call Herod's temple the third temple period causes some people great discomfort because Orthodox Jews believe it is God who is going to enter in to the third temple period. And that will be Christ's second coming when we have the third temple. So we're not going to call it the third temple. I will refer to it as the second temple or the temple during Jesus's lifetime. Well, Sadly, that second temple during Jesus's lifetime, it was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. And so all we really have left that they have been able to successfully excavate is the Western Wall, which you may be familiar with it being called the Wailing Wall. And we also have part of the Southern Wall and the Southern Steps. And I have a picture of this on my studentofthebible.com website. Well, there is this amazing 50 to 1 scale model of what they believe Jerusalem looked like and the temple looked like during the time of Jesus. This scale is huge and you can walk all the way around it. 
and it's at the Israel Museum and it can just give you this great visual of what it must have looked like. Well, because you don't have that in front of you, I'm going to do my best to explain what it looked like on the top of Mount Moriah during the time of Jesus. So imagine a city of maybe 100 to 200,000 people swelling three times a year to 1 million people or more. On these occasions, this small ancient city had to cope not only with throngs of people, but think about this also their sacrificial animals and offerings, the temporary increase in food supply, accommodations, ritual bathing facilities, which I'll talk about in a minute, all aspects of commerce. So it's Herod who is installed by the Romans, is faced with these logistical problems. But he is called Herod the Great for a reason. He really was very clever about the way that he renovated the city and the temple to accommodate this massive periodic influx of people. So in order to meet increased capacity, he had to, because of Jewish law, and to be able to accommodate so many people, he built a huge plaza around the temple. So in addition to the actual temple itself, which we'll talk about, there were four different courtyards. Now, they've actually found one of these massive stones, limestone, that he used to build this section. This stone that they found weighs as much as 200 elephants. It's crazy. Now, there were four outer courtyards. A Gentile courtyard for non-Jews is on the north and the south end of the complex. The court of women is on the east end, and this is where both men and women can enter, but only women have to stay there. Men can go further. The court of Israelites, for Jewish men only. And then you have the priest's court, which was for priests only. Now, the women's court was necessary because Jewish women were not allowed to go any further into the temple. And honestly, this segregation by Orthodox Jews is still in existence today. I saw it on the Shabbat, on their Sabbath, men and women would be walking separately to the synagogue. In the synagogue, they sit separately at the Wailing Wall. Men and women are separate. At King David's tomb, men and women are separate. Now, in the women's court, at the west end of it, this is so cool, there's this place called the Treasury. And this is the section where there were 13 trumpet-shaped containers for voluntary offerings of money. Now, in Mark chapter 12, 41 through 44, he talks about this. He says that Jesus was sitting opposite the Treasury. And this is the story of the widow's might. Jesus saw the widow put into one of the containers two copper coins, 
which were all that she had. Now, these trumpets where people would put in their offerings, really what they look like to me is, is a very large beaker. Think of something that's very narrow at the top and then it gets very wide bottomed at the bottom. And each trumpet was labeled for a different type of offering and then the funds would be collected and earmarked for special uses. So Jesus knew which trumpet the widow put her last two coins in. And listen to this. This is what he says to his disciples. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogue. That is Matthew 6, 2. Well, this is what's so cool because it's a double entendre. Jesus is so smart. He's referring to the sound, this trumpet sound that would be made when large amounts of money were thrown into the trumpet-shaped container. Because there's no paper currency, it's just coins. And so presumably wealthy givers would stand over the trumpet and drop their money in. Can you imagine this maybe one coin at a time? Dink, 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 making this very loud noise as the money hits the metallic bottom of the container. It kind of reminds me of slot machines when you would win big and you hear all the money hitting the tray and you're looking around to see who's noticing your big fortune. That's what I'm thinking. So during the time of Jesus, before entering this temple complex, you need to bathe in one of the mikvahs. And I got to see some. They have uncovered 50 of them right now outside of the temple and another 200 within Jerusalem. Chances are there were many more than that, but that's just what archaeologists have uncovered so far. So you most likely would climb the southern steps, which also is pictured on my website, and you would come into this court of Gentiles, which I told you is this large courtyard on the north and the south end of the complex. It's a beautiful paved area. Stones of various colors are covering it, and it's also called the outer court. And around this temple proper is a nine foot high terrace with stairs, much higher than the court of Gentiles. And then another five foot high wall on top of it. And the non-Jews cannot go any further than this court of Gentiles. And on the very top were these pillars warning in Latin, Greek, and Hebrew that Gentiles could go no further under penalty of death. And they've actually found these stones. So that is so cool. We know that it actually was a thing. And the Bible tells us in Acts 21, 17 through 29, Paul was accused of doing this. He was accused of bringing a Greek further into the temple beyond the Gentile court. Well, he didn't, but that's what that story comes from. Okay, so now if we continue eastward from the Gentile court, there's this magnificent circular staircase in the Nicanor Gate. Entering through the gate, there's a, if you can kind of visualize, a narrow hall, and it's beautiful. It's filled with cloistered columns called the Court of the Israelites. This is where the Jewish men get to hang out. 
the court of the Israelites is surrounded by the court of the priests. And this is where the altar of sacrifice is, and this is where the priest can be. Women, sadly, can only glance over the balcony from the court of women to see the ceremonies that are going on in the inner court. Now, running north and south at the west end is the sanctuary proper. Comprising from east to west, there's a porch. Then you have the holy place, sanctuary. And then beyond the curtain, you have the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies is closest to the Western Wall, which I think is so cool that it's still standing because it's still so close to the presence of God. Now, the Holy of Holies is where the Ark of the Covenant was kept during the first temple period. Now, the last time the Ark of the Covenant, which if you remember, houses the Ten Commandments, Aaron's staff, and manna. Well, the last time that it's mentioned in the Bible is right before the destruction of the first temple by the Babylonians. Huh. It's not present during the second temple period, Jesus's lifetime. During the second temple period, we still had the room, the Holy of Holies, separated from the holy sanctuary by a curtain, but there's no Ark of the Covenant in it. No mercy seat. Where is it? Well, did you ever see Raiders of the Lost Ark? I mean, we, we just, we don't know, do we? Um, nobody knows where it is, or at least I personally don't know where it is. Okay, so priests would enter this outer holy place to perform various duties, like offer incense on the golden incense altar. And this is what we learn Zechariah in Luke chapter 1, verses 8 through 22. This is what he was doing when an angel appeared to him and announced that his wife was going to give birth to John the Baptist. Now, here's what's so crazy about this. During the time of Jesus, there might have been 18,000 different priests. So the fact that an individual priest any time during his lifetime would actually get an opportunity to go to this sanctuary was crazy. They would have to cast lots to decide who was going to go in. So the priest who drew the lot, lucky him, he would leave the priest courtyard where the slaughterhouse and the altar for the sacrifices was, climb stairs, and enter the sanctuary. He just walks past a porch and the back wall of this porch was overlaid with gold. Just beautiful. And he would enter into the sanctuary or the holy place. Now, this room was pretty dark. It was only lit by a menorah. So again, it's understandable when Zechariah is in there that he's a little freaked out when he sees an angel appear to him because he thinks he's alone and it's kind of a dark room. There's only a few pieces of furniture in this holy sanctuary. There's two tables, one of gold and one of marble. And on these tables is what we call the show bread. And these were, you know, cakes or loaves of bread, kind of in my mind, I think like matzah bread because it would be unleavened. And the bread would be replaced once a week. 
every Shabbat. Two stacks, stack of six, stack of six. And then next to the bread is a golden altar with two cups of frankincense. And then you have the menorah. That's the only thing that's in this holy place or the sanctuary. Now there's a double veil that separates the holy place from the piece de la resistance, the holy of holies or the most holy place. Now this is very special because this is the place where the high priest once a year on the day of atonement or it's called Yom Kippur, that's where he gets to go. Now, in this room, there's no furniture at all. So you don't get to like sit and rest because you're not hanging out here for a long time. It's just the Ark of the Covenant. The high priest's job is to sprinkle the blood of sacrificial animals. Now, a bull would be offered as the atonement for the priest and his household. And then a goat would be offered as atonement for the people. And he would offer incense upon the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat. Now, in the second temple period, as I told you before, there's no Ark of the Covenant. And so blood would be sprinkled where the Ark would have been. And incense was put on the brazen altar of incense. Now, for priests, sacrificial offerings and prayers would be done twice a day, once in the morning and once in the evening. And then, of course, there'd be additional things that they would do on the Sabbath and festival days. Offerings, lots of different reasons. Forgiveness of sin, purification for contact with the dead, oof. Um, other ritual impurities, or hey, thank you, God. So offers of gratitude. I did not know this. Only five types of animals could be brought as a sacrifice. You couldn't just bring in any old thing like your old dog. No, ox, sheep, goats, turtle doves, or pigeons. That's it. Other sacrifices known as flower offerings could be uh, wheat or barley flour uh, accompanied by olive oil and frankincense. And then sometimes there would be wine or water poured into these special cavities in the altar. Here's another cool thing. This is a little equal opportunity. Men or women can bring sacrifices and so can non-Jews. When bringing a mammal, the person bringing the sacrifice would rest his hands on the animal when applicable to confess his sins. Kind of visualize that for a moment. Have you ever heard the term scapegoat? Jesus was our sacrificial lamb. Think of this innocent animal. You're placing your sins on this animal. Jesus, our sacrificial lamb. He was completely innocent, without blemish, and takes on the sins of the world. So this animal slaughtered, and then its blood is captured in this special utensil and is going to be applied to the walls of the altar, sometimes sprinkled, sometimes smeared, sometimes poured, depending on the type of sacrifice. Also, depending on the type of sacrifice, either the entire animal or just certain parts of it will be sacrificed in the altar, while other parts 
can be eaten by the priest or the person who brought the sacrifice. Now, there is this Jewish historian named Josephus, and he gives historians and theologians a lot of extra information about what uh, Jerusalem and Israel looked like during the time of Jesus. And he said that in 66 AD, 66 AD, so after the time of Jesus, there was a Passover celebration in Jerusalem where 2.7 million people came to Jerusalem and sacrificed 256,500 lambs. Wow, that's crazy. Now, the role of the high priest, he's the very special dude who gets to go in once a year to the Holy of Holies. Well, there can only be one high priest. Remember, I told you 18,000 or more regular priests, but only one high priest. Here's a fun fact. During the time of Herod's reign, he actually had six different high priests. And the reason is because if he didn't like you, he would fire you. And it was a way for him to keep control because the high priest was the most important role for Jews. And therefore, it was very threatening to the Romans. Another way that Herod kept control over the high priest was the special robes that they wore. He kept them in his guard tower that surrounded his Antonio fortress. So you actually had to go and ask special permission to get your special high priest robe. Wow. Well, as we close this lesson, I want you to close your eyes for a minute, unless you're driving, then please don't. But I'd like you to reflect on what we've learned today. We're starting to imagine what the temple looked like during the time of Jesus. We're trying to understand the various courtyards and men and women, believers and non-believers, they're congregating together and we're starting to understand how important this temple was to the Jewish people. We're imagining Passover and other religious holidays that could maybe see a million or more people in these courtyards in this surrounding area. Can you imagine having that many people attend your church service? Wow. As a Jewish believer, this was the holiest place on earth. You actually felt heaven touch earth here. You were as close to God as you could get while still being alive. Imagine that. Have you ever felt that way? Maybe when you're in church or deep in prayer, or you look at a mountain surrounded by clouds, or maybe you hear the rush of water, the waves, or maybe you don't know that feeling. Maybe you've never really felt that deep presence of God. We'll invite him in. God wants to have a relationship with you. Here's the really great news. The veil is torn. 
we now have access to God 24 hours a day. You don't have to travel anywhere to let him in. In our next podcast, we're going to start to explore the walls, the gates, and the steps to enter the temple. There's a lot of Bible stories that refer to these areas. I can't wait to be a student of the Bible together. Have a blessed day. I'll talk to you soon.